You are listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 13th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Ukraine's defense minister says his country has become a de facto member of NATO. France's first lady pitches into the debate about school uniforms. And the World Economic Forum in Davos is about to begin. I am Markus Hippi. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studio here at Dufosrasse 90 in Zurich. I am Markus Hippi. Coming up, my guests Monocle's Carlotta Rebello and Tom Webb will look at some of the day's biggest stories, including the latest in the war between Russia and Ukraine and a debate in France over school uniforms. We'll also cross over to Singapore to preview Southeast Asia's largest ever art fair. Stay tuned, all that and more Coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Welcome to the program. This is the Monocle Daily and I am Markus Hippi. Today we are coming to you from our studios here in Zurich's Dufostrasse as Monocle's Zurich HQ. And I'm happy to say that I'm joined today by Monocle's Deputy Head of Radio Tom Webb and Monocle's Senior Producer Carla Torabella. Welcome both to the program. Hi Marcus. Hi. Hello, hello. It's great to be back in Switzerland. So obviously myself and you Carla, so we've been here a number of times. Tom, you haven't been in Zurich that many times and I believe it's your first visit to our Zurich HQ and to these studios. What are your first impressions? Yep, first visit. It's been a very warm welcome. It's actually very mild in Zurich, which I've enjoyed. Um, I've particularly enjoyed the water and the bread. The water, very, very fresh. Bread, very, very soft. I mean, it sounds like Switzerland to me. <laughs> well, Carlotta, we've been here so many times that it feels all very familiar, but actually where we haven't been that many times is something we're planning in a few days' time when the World Economic Forum in Davos begins. How excited are you about that? I'm actually quite excited about this edition, Mark, because as you know, I've been there, I went, was there last year, which was this kind of hybrid uh, hangover from the pandemic where uh, it was held in May, so the traditional cold Davos to start the year wasn't really the mood. There was no snow, it was quite warm, people were walking around on with short sleeves. So I'm excited to actually have to put some uh, uh, snow tires on the way to go up to the mountain. And I think the three of us are up to that task. You know what I've been finding surprisingly stressful this time around? It's the dress coat. It's my first time in Davos. And I'm like, it's going to be cold. But at the same time, you're surrounded by all these people who are incredibly powerful and important. What do you wear? Well, I think you just need to wear what you wear to work every day, Marcus, your power suit. Maybe just change your shoes. Tom, what's your top tip? You've been there before. It is. It's all about shoe changes. I have three pairs of shoes, driving shoes, (laughs) snowshoes, and very, very smart shoes. I just have my curling boots. Excellent. Well, well, let's start today's programme for real in Ukraine. Ukraine's defence minister has said his country has become a de facto member of NATO. Oleksiy Resnikov says he's confident Western countries will continue supplying weapons, including heavy tanks and fighter jets, 
needed to defeat Russia. This statement comes as Russia claims its forces have captured the Ukrainian salt mine town of Soledar after a month-long battle. However, Ukrainian authorities have yet to confirm Russia's claim. Carlotta, you did report for Monocle from Ukraine last year. How much can you tell us about the situation in Soledar? How much do we know and how concerning are the news we are getting? So what is interesting here, of course, with war, you, you have one side claiming one thing and one side, another side claiming another. Russia has been now going on three days, I believe, that is saying they are making significant gains, claiming victory today. That is the latest from about 50 minutes ago or so. They're claiming victory uh, after a long battle and uh, have put out a statement calling it an important step in this offensive. We need to remember that if true, this is the biggest um, advances that Russia has seen um, in, uh, in at least three or four months. Uh, but on the other hand, you have Ukraine saying that that is not the case, that they still control part of the region, that this is all part of uh, information noise. That is the quote coming out of um, uh, Ukraine's uh, presidential office. Um, so it's quite difficult to understand. What we know for a fact is that the battle for Solidar has been so far one of the uh, bloodiest, where more people have died. You know, this is a relatively small town. Um, it's barely left with anyone there. Um, only 559 civilians uh, are left, including to the regional, including, uh, according to the regional governor. And these are the numbers from yesterday, people who couldn't be moved out. So it is, it is a place that is scarred by these strikes, by this offensive. And we need to remember, casualties are not just civilians. There are People on both sides are fighting Russians and Ukrainians who have died around Solidar. Absolutely. Tom, what are your thoughts about the comments we've been hearing from the Ukrainian defense minister who gave an interview recently saying that he thinks that Ukraine has become a de facto member of NATO? Oleksiy Resnikov also said that he's confident that Western countries will supply weapons. What are your impressions about what we're getting from Kiev? Well, it, it feels like Reznikov didn't think his comments controversial at all, uh, as far as he's concerned. They are already part of NATO, and this is because they have the weaponry and the understanding of how to use it. And it certainly has been the case that the West has been sending them many, many fighting vehicles and rocketry, but they have held back on the heavier tanks and the longer-range missiles. That now looks like it's changing. Reznikov also said that Western nations are now giving the advanced weapons, which has given him impetus to make these comments. Britain has said they are considering sending tanks. So have Poland, Germany have changed their stance. They're saying they shouldn't stand in the way of other countries taking decisions to support Ukraine. Um, so far, it's been successful. It hasn't triggered the Russian blowback that they have been fearing, that NATO have been worried about. Um, but because this blowback is so feared, it does not feel like NATO membership is on the way anytime soon. Carlotta, you did interview another Ukrainian minister. You interviewed Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba last year. And, and what he says, it's really interesting. It was quite similar. Yeah, it was quite similar and um, it, it was striking at the time, particularly because of the fact that there was no hesitation at all. Uh, so when I met with him in, in Kiev, it was, was late October, early November last year, um, you know, I asked him about, you know, the fact that the groundwork for um, Ukraine to become a EU member had already began if NATO membership could follow. And without hesitation, he said, you know, after this war, that Ukraine will be full members of both the EU and NATO and guarantee guarantors of global food security. And he added that, you know, because of all the 
training and all the experience that Ukraine's army is getting from this war, once they join NATO, they will be the most powerful army after the United States, and therefore the most powerful army in Europe, which, you know, it does make sense, because, considering it's, it would be, if they do become a NATO member, the only army that has had recent combat experience and support from the world and all these advanced military equipment sent their way. Uh, but it's quite a bold statement to make that, you know, that there is this true belief that after the war, there's no doubt that Ukraine will be a member of NATO. I was just going to ask if you think this is just rhetoric, something you say when you are in a war against Russia or whether this this signals this absolute determination in Kiev what the future of the country is I think it's a it's certainly a mix of both you know the messages are delivered at a certain time for a reason but I have no doubt at least from the conversations I've had through my trips uh, to Ukraine and contacts over uh, the months in between with people who are there that this is a determination for what the future of the country looks like. It is making a signal that despite the geographical location, um, Ukraine belongs to the West. And that's another thing that Dmitry Kuleba said in our interview, that the West is not a geographical notion. It's a political one. And Ukraine is not the country on the periphery of Europe. It is part of this group of nations that want peace, that want democracy, that want prosperity. I think it would be good to remember, though, that there may be some obstacles on the way when it comes to Ukraine, possible future NATO membership or or EU membership. Let's just look at what Sweden and Finland are going through when they are trying to become members of, of NATO. Tom, are you worried or do you think there is a chance that Ukraine may eventually be disappointed and frustrated and bitter when the war one day ends and the country realizes that actually all these things they want, EU membership and NATO membership, are not that easy to achieve? Momentum feels like that might not be the case. Just looking at comments made by Stoltenberg, the NATO chief, he said uh, a few months ago that one day Ukraine will join NATO. Um, But as you were saying, at this time, their their commitment is not stretching beyond the billions of dollars in military and humanitarian aid. So it it feels like at this stage that NATO countries believe the focus should remain on supporting the military rather than politics and this this divisive political fight. the, The settled plan that they have, which is weapons now membership talk later, I don't think that's going to be changing. Carlos, what are your final thoughts, final thoughts about this same thing? Do you think there's a chance that Ukraine may well be disappointed in the future? Look, I think um, there needs to always be that possibility at the back of someone's mind. I understand that for Ukrainian officials and Ukrainian soldiers and for Ukrainian people, and it needs to be this absolute determination in their minds. And it would be the same for any of us if it was with our own nation. But uh, as foreign observers, as in observing from abroad and not Ukrainians, there needs to be there needs to be a plan B, C and D if this does not go the way that everyone thinks it's going. Um, we've heard so many times that if Ukraine falls, the rest of Europe follows and that that is a dangerous but real prospect. Well, next on the Monocle Daily, we look up to the mountains, more specifically to the town of Davos, where almost 3,000 politicians, executives, investors, bankers and academics are convening for this year's World Economic Forum annual meeting. With the theme cooperation in a fragmented world, there's plenty to talk about over the next seven days. And Monocle will be there too. Carlos Santom, what are you looking forward to most? 
For me, it is the houses. I don't know if you know, there are houses all around Davos that are normally restaurants and civic buildings, but countries enter them and they become these big cultural centres to showcase the various traditions of their countries and being on the global stage and also being a sort of centre for collaboration and business opportunities. So I will be going to many of these houses, uh, including Ukraine's house. It's back again four years in a row last year it attracted over 30,000 visitors one being Carlotta you had quite a good experience oh Ukraine house is great they had such a big delegation of people from you know all parts of civic life from MEPs to uh, people from invest Ukraine this business group that helps bring investment to the country there was a lot of talk about infrastructure redevelopment back then as well so and we need to remember last year was in May it was mm. the war had just started so that was a big power a soft power push by Ukraine to be at Davos last year, pre-applying for EU membership, pre any of these conversations that we've just had about the future of the country. Um, so it will be interesting to see what the priorities are, what you find out, Tom, when you go there. What are their priorities this year coming back to uh, the World Economic Forum? Carlotta, besides Ukraine House, what else impressed you last year? I was quite uh, uh, surprised about the emphasis on cities. I know I'm biased when I say that, of course, because of the urbanist podcast that I produce with our editor-in-chief, uh, Andrew Tucker's host. And um, But last year, there was a big emphasis on the comeback of cities. As mentioned, it was in May, pandemic was still lingering, and the investment and type of conversation happening on the ground. There was such a big delegations of ma- delegation of mayors. I caught up with uh, several of them, including um, the mayor of Stockholm um, and uh, the director for cities for the World Economic Forum as well. And just this idea that, you know, um, you can't talk about public life, you can't talk about nationwide diplomacy when you don't include cities. And that's what I'm the conversation I'm going to try to pick up again this year. Now, Tom, how much can you tell us about this year's event? What are the main themes? So, you mentioned cooperation in a fragmented world. That is very broad, too, too broad. I'll try and unpack that for you. But, of course, the war in Ukraine underpins all of that. But aside, um, there is going to be a big focus on energy and the food crisis. Davos is usually seen as a place that turns a blind eye to these issues that are affecting the mass. Um, That also includes high inflation, a look at low growth, and also the social vulnerabilities of the world that does include the impact of the pandemic still and geopolitical risks. And also looking at the events that I'll be attending, misinformation seems to be popping up uh, across all the various houses that I'll be visiting. Um, It's funny, actually, because the previous theme of Davos was the Great Reset, which was obviously a very uh, obvious look at at the coronavirus pandemic. Um, But the Great Reset became a claim that the uh, people online were seeing as the global elite were planning to use the coronavirus to bring about big total economic collapse. So Davos have a long history of combating misinformation. Tom and Carlotta, um, we've been planning, obviously, interviews, and we have some kind of a plan at the moment what we are doing in the days to come. But can you try to explain to our listeners what kind of a job it is to try to find the essential people and find the essential interviews you need to do when you have almost 3,000 people gathering in the same place, many of them, some of the most powerful in the world? 
Oh, and everyone is after them as well. So uh, it is quite a mammoth task to be at Davos. Hence this, I, I must say, quite a striking delegation that we have here going up the mountains. Um, but uh, yeah, you mentioned that nearly 3,000 people, just in terms of that's just the people attending, because if you think about just the Swiss army itself has deployed 5,000 military men to go and patrol this small town in the mountains. But it is a mammoth task. And, you know, we received a list uh, that has all the attendees and is over 50 pages long. And um, there is so many press conferences and talks and events happening all at the same time. And you need to remember what Tom said just in the beginning of this chat. That was that he also has the houses, which is outside of the World Economic Forum and organized outside of that where you have even more people. But listeners can be assured we'll have the best content for them. And my eyes have been Switching through scrolling through so many names, but actually approaching them on behalf of Monocle, people want to talk to us. So it, it is it's proving to be successful. Now, in other news, designers and journalists have also descended in Florence this week for Pitti Uomo, the world's leading menswear trade show. One of those designers is Dutchman Jan Jan van Escher, who put on his very first catwalk show as the special guest at this year's Pitti Uomo. The show brought together dancers, musicians and models for a captivating event in the Santa Maria Novella convent. It also transformed van Escher from a relatively unknown name to one of the industry's most in-demand designers. Monaco's fashion editor Natalie Theodosi caught up with him in Florence and asked Vanesh what made him want to be a part of Piti Uomo. I mean, it's an invitation first and foremost. It's not like, uh, oh, I want to do that, let's ask. So it's not, it doesn't go that way. But of course it was the way they, they asked us, the proposition Lapo and Francesca uh, brought to us. They really wanted us to be here for us, like for for the didn't want, like they said, like the gender listing and um, the diverse casting and and the sustainability and all these kind of things are things that are quite en vogue right now. But it's they say like, but for you it's not like a, a marketing thing or, or a trendy thing. It's what you've been doing for the whole existence of the line. And so this invitation felt so sincere and, and nice that I that I really I was charmed by it. And on the other, yeah, it's also kind of an opportunity. You don't it's a once in a lifetime thing that you don't say no to. So it's um, yeah, that's also of course it's, it's just a, an amazing platform. And tell me a little bit more about the design process. Some of the fabrics are, are really important in creating your collections and, and how you've, you've built up this vocabulary of, of silhouettes and, and clothes that you keep uh, working with because you don't look mm -hmm. at seasons and, and changing things every six months. Yeah, it's really something indeed that layered and that gradually evolved and, and there's like pieces that I don't do anymore because they've proven they're, that they're not that, not that good of an idea but some things they keep on coming back it's just and also there's like how what I want and, and the process is more like on one hand the classical process I start drawing I start really sketching but I do it quite intuitively there are more spots than, than real sketches it's, it's I draw a lot and I draw fast but I don't think while I'm drawing it's just kind of a game. It's it's fun. It's music, and it's like it's. I, I empty my head, and it's kind of. I always say it's a bit of écriture automatique. It just and then, 
the day after when the, the, the ink is dried, I, I kind of spread all these drawings out and I see what I actually subconsciously was into. And then, but it's more to see like, am I into big volumes or am I going to narrow shapes or what kind of pattern which is there? And then simultaneously to that, I start researching fabrics, but just really like, oh, this is nice. This is like just intuitive kind of uh, picking things. And from my archive, because I, I, I keep all my swatches and from things that I get sent from factories and partners I worked with through the years, more and more you find the right partners, of course. And that's kind of simultaneously and then certain point I go from the drawings to the pattern table and then the choice of fabric becomes more deliberate because you're like ah but if I'm gonna do technically these kind of things I can't work with these loose fabrics I need something tighter and then, then the palette kind of balances out and then in the studio we make prototypes of every piece patterns are all done in the studio and that goes to the factories and that's kind of how we come to yeah to a collection as we head into a new year now, mm -hmm. and having had a really big success from the beginning of it with, with this beautiful show, are there things that you want to do more of, to explore, or just generally something that you're really looking forward to when you look ahead at, at the next the year, year? And, and what you have planned for the brand? To be honest, it was such an intense journey to get here and to set up this, this first show that there wasn't much thinking beyond that and uh, beyond next week is fashion week of course in Paris but after that I don't really have much plans but I mean I know that I'm gonna do a next collection and, and, but yeah um, it's not that I have concrete dreams in that sense there there are kinds of collaborations that I would like to develop more on my inspirational agenda is blank let's say and I can just start over and then and I feel like making something fresh something uh, like last season I really felt like going back to the archive and really like but now I really feel like oh let's see what what this kind of experience gave us to I mean it gave me time to to retreat to think to to put things in a line and, and that's I'm curious where where that will go to and of course it will I mean the title of the collection is right. It came from Vina Bausch, Right of Spring, like kind of a rite de passage, like a and I really feel that, that we are at a certain that we're going into a new chapter for our brand. The designer Jan Jan Vanesha, they're speaking to Monocle's Natalie Theodosi at Pitiuomo. Still with me are our panelists Scarlett Rebello and Tom Webb. Now a debate is ongoing in France over the introduction of compulsory school uniforms. The latest person to join the conversation was First Lady Brigitte Macron, who said she believes a mandatory uniform erases the differences and saves time. The wearing of school uniforms in France has not been obligatory since 1968. Tom, shall we go down the memory lane? Did you wear a school uniform at school and, and, and what did you go through? This is revisiting trauma. This is no memory lane. Um, shout out to South Dartmoor Community <laughs> College. I went to a state school or otherwise a free school that anyone can go to. And yet I still had the strictest school uniform in the county. Blazer, tie, shirt, tucked in. And 
one of the arguments for not having a school uniform is that well, school uniforms, they delay the transition into adulthood. And I can testify, I still don't know what to wear because I never had that opportunity. The eight years of having to wear uniform, I never got the sense of what colours work. Actually, can I point out that surely you didn't wear your school uniform 24-7? Surely there were moments in the evenings, for example, when you were wearing something else? I know, but I was so ill-informed. It was just jogging bottoms and vests. Um, I, one of the Nothing things, has changed then. No, right now I'm in a vest. It's so warm in Zurich. Uh, no, uh, one of the moments that I remember most from school is the delayed transition uh, that the school enforced for us to wear uniforms. So it didn't always mean that uniform was obligatory. The older kids got to wear what we call mufti, whereas the new kids joining had to wear school uniforms. So we were mercilessly bullied to be the only ones in a blazer and a tie. Mm. Carlotta, do you want to tell us something? What is your story? Well, we, uh, uniforms are not really a thing in Portugal unless you go to like a Catholic school where you thought, you know, if you're a girl by nuns or by priests, if you're a boy. Uh, but the primary school that I went to, we had a different thing. We had a sort of like gown that you'd put on top of like your regular clothes. So it just looked like, imagine like a doctor's like white gown um, and it had the school emblem and it was kind of so that you wouldn't get your clothes dirty and everyone kind of looked the same in the pictures um, but you were wearing your regular clothes underneath so as soon as school was done you just you know take that off and put it in your bag and off you go so I didn't really have that experience with uniforms and for that I'm uh, very thankful. You know what, am I the only one who's actually pro-school uniforms over here? Because I'm thinking, I didn't need to wear one at school. And I realised after that, that there are some things I don't do as well as, as other people. For example, tying a tie is very difficult for me, because I haven't done it that many times in my life. Because I didn't need to do it at school. And also... I think it was interesting what really opened my eyes to how clothes change the way we see other people is when I did my military service in Finland and I met my met my mates over there or these other other guys who were, who were sharing this room with me where we where we like slept in the night and I would only see them wearing the, the the uniforms and then after 10 months when the military service was over we had this day when we all of a sudden were allowed to switch to our civilian wear and then all of a sudden you realize that these people you thought you knew were wearing clothes that you didn't imagine they would wear. And I think it was just a really interesting observation. And the way I see school uniforms is that they are somehow more equal and they may well save your time, as Bridget Macron says as well, because you don't need to worry about in the morning what to wear. It's quite simple. Carlotta, what do you think about that? No, I I, I do agree with that. I'm not saying that I'm... I'm not going to say I'm 100% pro school uniforms because I haven't experienced it, neither to... I mean, you, I know we're talking about school uniforms here, but your experience in the military is, you know, it goes to that same point of like eliminating any differences and every, giving everyone a clean slate in terms of how you relate to one another that you're not able to discern socio-economical economic background um, political affiliations whatever due to the way you dress I, I understand that principle but I think that in practice is not as pragmatic as that and there is something to be said about self-expression I think particularly with kids maybe not so much so as an adult in the military but particularly with kids you need to be able to have that room to experiment where the clothes are embarrass you that you look back at those photos and you just want to like like get them away from sight i think that is an important part of growing up too
So are we now to be taking school advice from someone who was wooed by their drama student in high school? (laughs) That's a very good point. Uh, I actually had a quick look at a longitudinal study from 2009, and they concluded there is no evidence uh, of a remedy to behaviour problems or boosting academic performance. In fact, just a whole load of negative things from cultural conflicts, gendered uniforms that are more expensive and difficult to move around in, and a cost you have seasonal problems. Uniforms don't work well in the winter as they do in the summer. And, of course, you grow out of them. Tom Webb and Carlotta Rebello, thank you very much. We continue to Singapore next. The inaugural Art SG is taking place in the city-state this weekend. It is Southeast Asia's largest ever art fair and slated to be a major turning point for Singapore's status as a regional arts hub. Monocle's Naomi Shuelikan spoke with fair director Shuin Young and gallery owner Kevin Poon to hear more. ArtSG is going to be the largest art fair ever for the Southeast Asia region, which is uh, really exciting because I'm Singaporean and we've been waiting for a major event like this for a very long time. It is also going to be the biggest ever art fair launch for the Asia Pacific region in a decade. So apart from just being you know, grounded in Singapore and Southeast Asia, we are getting a lot of excitement from across Asia. So for collectors from Japan, Korea, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan. So we think we're going to have a very strong Pan-Asian and also Australian attendance as well. In terms of what we are really looking forward to, this is going to be an international level art fair, but grounded in Singapore and Southeast Asia. So it will really showcase the culture, the diversity, the practitioners of contemporary art across Southeast Asia. And You know, what's really fascinating is that we often refer to Southeast Asia as one region. It actually consists of 11 sovereign states, 10 countries, many of whom contribute to art collecting and art practice, cultural identity, and just all kinds of dialogue and cultural engagement in so many ways. So we're very excited for the fair to bring all of this to the front of what visitors are going to see when they encounter artistry for the first time. How have you seen Singapore's status as an art hub change over the years and how do you think artistry is going to affect that? Well, Singapore has always had a very strong cultural footprint. There has been a lot of attention being paid to visual arts, performing arts, literature, theatre. But over, especially over the last decade, we have seen a real impact from the galleries setting up in Singapore, the two precincts that we have now, Gilman Barracks and Tanjong Paga District Park, and also a wonderful museum network starting to take place here from the Singapore Art Museum to the National Gallery of Singapore, and also even the Asian Civilizations Museum, which looks at historical cultures from around the region. So what we see here is a great cultural base. However, we do not yet have a major art fair taking place, which, as you know, always lends vibrancy and color to a city. So we feel that artistry has a real role to play and it can lend something towards the scene that's already developing here and and turn Singapore into a real cultural capital. What are some of the artists or shows that you're looking forward to in particular? So we are going to have a very exciting lineup of over 150 regional and international galleries. We will see many of the top names with multi-city locations such as Gagosian, Pace, Y-Cube, 
Lehman Maupin, Periton coming. And of course, they will be bringing the artists, which are very key to their overall programming and showcasing many of the new works that were created within 2022. And audiences here have not had a chance to engage with these names and their works for a very long time in person. So this is going to be very exciting. But the other aspect of ArtSG is that we will have a lot of curated content that allows audiences to have a deeper exploration of artists that they are not familiar with, or perhaps are upcoming names that they have not yet had a chance to see in person. And some of these discoveries will be through solo or two artist showcases or very tightly curated thematic group shows taking place not only in the main sector, which is called galleries, but also in a sector called Focus, which was especially created to support this type of presentation. One of the galleries featured in ArtSG's Focus sector is WOW Gallery, founded in Hong Kong in 2019 by entrepreneur and fashion designer Kevin Poon. After opening branches in Hong Kong and Beijing, he's launching his first Southeast Asia gallery in Singapore during ArtSG. Well, I think I've always had a fascination with Singapore just because it almost feels like a cousin to Hong Kong, just in terms of how far it is, and people's kind of taste. And it's always fascinating. I used to go to pop-ups at Dover Street Market and Dempsey and just was always fascinated with Singapore. It was always a possibility. So the opening is timed with the opening of Art SG. Is there a reason why you wanted to make it coincide? Yeah, definitely. I think there's going to be a lot of momentum. You know, there's over 100 galleries showing during that time. And a lot of my friends will be in town at the time naturally because of the art fair. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, we were able to catch the opening. What can we expect as the first exhibits from the new Singapore Gallery? So I thought a lot. I thought about it a long time, and so I came up with this idea as friends and partners because I was like looking online to see like, oh, what can we name the show? You know, but you know, what is you know, people kept on asking me it's like, what does this mean between Hong Kong and Singapore? And are you abandoning Hong Kong? And blah 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 blah. And I was like, no, I'm not abandoning Hong Kong. I'm living here fully, but I just want to outpost in Singapore. And I started googling. And I think there was like a connection between Hong Kong and Singapore that it was titled as friends and partners. So Hong Kong and Singapore, that's the connection as friends and partners. And I thought it would be like a double entendre to kind of really talk about the situation between Hong Kong and Singapore and also just between me and the artists that I've, the friends of the artists and partners that I've grown through the years. And so we have a show right now. I think we have, I don't know, 10 artists, Sumadu, one guy from London that I really love, Jordi Kerwig, Killa Chang, uh, which is a Hong Kong artist, Jen Zihin, Stacey Lay, you know, so it's just like people that I really love. And yeah, hopefully you guys will really love it too. Monocle's Naomi Shu Elegant in Singapore and that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panelists today here in Zurich, Carla Terabello and Tom Webb. Today's show was produced by Carla Terabello and researched by Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. Our studio engineer was Adam Heaton back in London with editing assistance from Emily Sands. I am Marcus Hippi. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time on Monday. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>